0: If you uh, brought your Bibles with you this morning, let me invite you to turn with me once again to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, In the Blue Bibles, it's on page 1015. You can, of course, find it in your bulletins as well this morning. Although, uh, sometimes I, I, I suggest staying in the bulletins. Today, I would suggest having your Bibles open if you have them, because we'll be looking at a couple of things that are right in the vicinity here of this passage that I'm going to read in just a moment. In just a moment, I will read for us verses 13 through 17. But just to let you know, those verses are going to be the same verses in my sermon next week. So next week, I'm going to be preaching on the content, on the substance of the verses before us. Uh, There are different types of sermons, and ideally, those different types of sermons reflect the different intentions that we find in different parts of Scripture. So as we began First Peter, and as we were in First Peter for the fall, that opening section of the book was designed for our encouragement and our strengthening. And so the sermons, accordingly, were designed to be encouraging sermons for us. Uh, compare that, for example, to last week where we had a passage, verses 11 and 12 of First Peter 2, that was exhortational where Peter was conveying a mission unto the church, and so the sermon itself was an exhortation that went along with what we found in Scripture, and even uh, the title of it, Once More Unto uh, the Breach, dear friends, is that same idea of an exhortation. Uh, But what I'd like to do for us today is more of an instructional sermon. So if you're here today and you need encouragement, you might need to listen to one of the ones from the beginning of the book. If you need a good rousing exhortation to something, you can listen to last week's sermon. Uh, Today is going to be a little bit more of laying some groundwork for this main body of the letter that we have now uh, entered into. That goes along, a couple of times recently I've quoted for us as I begin the reading of the text. Uh, 2nd Peter, Peter, 2nd Timothy 3.16. And this kind of articulates the various purposes for which God has given the word, at least some of them. In that passage, it says, all scripture is inspired by God, God God-breathed, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the word is given to us for every good work, and we need all sorts of types of sermons and exhortations in that, uh, and then we are equipped well as the people of God. This then, that I'm going to reinforce, is the very word of God that has that intent in it as well. I'm going to begin with verses 11 and 12, though I think in your bulletin I actually began uh, with uh, 13. honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. The sermon title today is Honorable Conduct. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that as your people, you through your spirit who authored these very words through your servant, the apostle Peter, would today Communicate to us through this ministry of the word of preaching as we look at it. We pray that you would continue to transform us in every part of our being, but also in our understanding so that we understand what your will is. We understand what you would desire of us well as a people. Guide us into that today and then throughout this section of 1 Peter as well as we consider it together. Jesus, you are the great, the true, the prophet who has come, and we pray that you would make it clear to us today in your name. Amen. So, I prayed this, and I've said this now already. In verses 11 and 12, which I just read for us, and on which I preached last week. The mission is laid out for us. The the commissioned Apostle Peter now commissions the church in the name of Jesus Christ on two fronts. The internal front, and this is the way I described it last week, internal, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, leading unto the external front keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As I said last week, the external mission of honorable conduct in the world with a view towards the salvation of the lost, or if not their salvation, at least a rebuttal, to their claims that Christians are in fact evildoers, with a, with a view towards all of that leading to ultimately the glory of God, this external mission of honorable conduct is now going to become the focus for Peter. Uh, he's, he's, he's spoken to us of the internal one, but now he's going to focus for us on what does it look like to have this honorable conduct of a life lived out in the world under, if you will, the public eye. When people are looking at you, when people are watching, how do you do it? And we just read one of those sections there that describe that mission in particular. But today, as I've already said, I don't want to look at the substance of the exhortation, but instead, I kind of want to look at the framework of this section. (laughs) And the way I'm going to do it today is I'm going to do it under four headings for us. And And these headings are not clever. Okay, they do not rhyme, they do not alliterate, there's not a nice little sentence uh, that puts them all together. I'm going to go through them one at a time, I'm only going to say them at the time that I actually introduce them, and what I would encourage you to do is simply jot it down. If nothing else, just jot down the title of each one of these sections, and they would be good for reflection over the upcoming weeks. So, we look at this passage, and the first heading that I want us to consider, the first part of the framework that I want us to consider, is what I want to call household codes, okay? Household codes. If you look at your Bibles, you'll see that in the passage before us, we have instruction with respect to authority, particularly the one that I just read for us with respect to governmental authority. That's followed in verse 18 and following with instructions regarding slaves and masters, and it's followed right after that in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, with instructions that are given to wives and to husbands. So with respect to citizens and the government, with respect to slaves and masters, with respect to uh, wives and husbands, the family itself. These are not random groupings that exist. They're not random topics that Peter just pulled out of the air and thought, okay, what what should I talk about? Well, I'll talk about these particular three things. Instead, as Peter enters into this section, he's using a form of ethical instruction that would have been familiar to his audience at the time. They would have recognized what he is doing, though for us it doesn't come out, it doesn't sound like it's familiar at all. What Peter is doing is entering into the world of economics. The world of economics. Now, that sounds strange to us, to say that Peter's entering into the world of economics. Because when we think about economics, we think about production and we think about consumption, uh, we think about wealth or the distribution of wealth and the distribution of goods... But the word has a broader, original range to it. It derives from two Greek words. And the two Greek words are oikos, which means house, and namas, which means law. So oikos, namas, eka, which translated loosely would be house law. Okay? Household law. Or, as I'm using it here, um, and this, I'm not coining this phrase at all, but household codes. Peter is using this structure then to instruct the people of God. Aristotle has a book that is attributed to him by that very title, Economics, in which he discusses family relationships and family responsibilities in conjunction with a city, and a city is in fact an aggregate of families. And then when you talk about a nation and when you talk about the Greco-Roman view, the Greco-Roman view is that a nation is dependent upon the strength of families, and particular family units, the relationship between husbands and wives and children. And so, in the Greco-Roman view, you're not in totally different worlds when you're instructing, as Peter does here, on the one hand, you're talking about what's the citizen's responsibility with respect to the state, and on the other hand, you're talking about uh, husbands and wives and their relationships with one another. Those aren't two totally different things. They're very much linked things in the thought and the structure of the day. So a broad tradition of teaching in these categories exist and Peter lays hold of that tradition and then begins to unpack it and fill it in we see a very similar teaching and structure in the apostle paul and don't turn there now you can turn there later you can look at this sim- these similar categories and the very similar instruction in for example ephesians uh, 5 and 6 in colossians 3 and 4 and in some of the pastoral epistles as well. You can see these same kinds of categories being employed. They're generally referred to as household codes, codes that we might say are are codes of honorable conduct. Within these areas, in these topics, in these ideas of things that we're talking about right here, there's a code of honorable conduct that can be articulated with respect to them. And so what you've got here is the adoption of a Greco-Roman form to instruct the church in proper conduct that will be seen by the world. And when I say seen by the world, it will be observed by the Greco-Roman world. The Greco-Roman world will watch you in terms of what you are doing and evaluate you on the basis of that. Now, that's the form. In the content of the teaching itself, if we were able to compare some of the ethics of the day with the ethics of Peter and Paul as they address these various topics, what we would see is that there's some overlap between them. So, for example, in our passage that I just read for honor the emperor or honor the king, that would be an overlap. That's true. That would be a respected Greco-Roman virtue as well as one that is articulated in the scriptures as well. But there's also distinction. The distinction is, of course, that all of the behavior that Peter is talking about is rooted in the person and in the example of Jesus Christ, and that no other rulers, be it the emperor, can have the title of the sovereign of sovereigns, that only Christ has the title of the sovereign of sovereigns. And so, all things are done in his name and unto Christ. So, reflecting on this for just a moment, it brings me to a question. That is, why would they use this? Why use this format? Why use the household codes when you're going to give ethical instruction to the people of the church? Let me suggest a couple of reasons for that. First, they use these because they serve ably, both in the writing of them and in the form of them, so in in the writing and in the structure of them, and in the living of them, the content of them, they serve ably as an apologetic to the surrounding world. Now, apologetic, in case you don't know, uh, when we use it in this kind of a context, uh, we're not talking about apologizing, we're talking about giving a defense, as a way to give a defense for uh, something. I used already the idea of the word rebuttal. Um, an apologetic is part of that. It's a defense of the life and of the truth of the gospel. So this, the, the, the emphasis of this section, and we saw this last week, is the seeing of your good deeds. The observing of your honorable conduct. That is critical to the mission of the church. That, that, is an, that is a component piece of the mission that God has given to us, and that's the emphasis of this section, right? We saw it in chapter 12, so that when they speak I mean, chapter 12, sorry, verse 12 so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father, who is in heaven. And it's right here in this one as well, uh, verse 15. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. When they see those things, when they observe that good and honorable conduct, it serves as a defense for the gospel. Now, the assumption here, and I said this last week, but it bears repeating again, I think. The assumption here is... That while the world certainly won't share all of the values of the church, certainly the, the world is not going to look at all of the things that you do and say, that's really, you've really done a great job, that's a good deed, congratulations, pat on the back, you're really a super person. Not with everything is the world going to say that, but with some things. With some things, they won't share everything, but they will share a few things. They will see, and they will have to admit, if they even have to admit it reluctantly, that that thing that you've just done is in fact a good thing. And that's what Peter is working with here. It's an apologetic mission when you speak the language of the people, when you speak the language of the culture that is around you, if any of them picked up and read 1 Peter, the Romans, that is, those who didn't believe in it, they would go, oh, I recognize that. That sounds very familiar. I I recognize some of the content here. And and I had us read that section in Deuteronomy chapter 4 this morning because although, of course, it's a different context, Israel is going to have its own land, be its own nation in the midst of other nations, The idea here is very much the same with regards to the statutes, the rules, the commands that the Lord your God has given you. You are to take those and live those out, and and what does it say in in verse 6, in the sight of the peoples, this is from Deuteronomy 4, in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and an understanding people for what other nation is there who has those kind of rules and those kind of statutes and by implication the kind of god who has given them those rules and those statutes so whether you were here living as an exile in northern turkey or whether you were getting ready to inherit the promised land the idea is people are looking at you people are looking at the life that you live and the apologetic is a life that is good or full of good deeds okay that's one reason the apologetic reason second These are good and sound instructions regarding the will of God for believers, period. Not just then, not just in that culture, but this reflects the will of God, that which is good. Even in verse 15 of our section, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, the good that I'm articulating for you, you put them and you silence those who would object. And this makes sense think about think about what Peter has said and I know we're we're now distant from that culturally speaking and just in terms of reflection on it but if you were a believer in the early portion of the church you would have heard a we have God as our king right you you just called us a royal priesthood and the way you get to be a royal priesthood is if you have a royal sovereign who is over you in addition to that You just said we're members of a holy nation. So we have God as our king. We are the members of a holy nation. We take the earlier part of the book. We've been born again into a new family. We have an eternal inheritance waiting for us. Peter has said all those things. But that doesn't mean, therefore, since you have an eternal inheritance waiting for you, you can stop working. don't don't worry about working anymore. We got this covered because you've got an eternal inheritance. It doesn't mean that you can lead a revolt because you are free. It doesn't mean you can abandon your family. You can't jettison. You can't say, well, all my family aren't believers and I am now part of the family of God. So I'm leaving this part of the family behind and I'm going to this new family that I've been born again into. You can't, forsake your nation you can't dishonor the rulers we are not in other words peter is saying this you're not exempted because of all of these great things that i've just told you you are not exempted from life in this world life isn't suddenly a free-for-all in christ where anything goes or a declared personal independence and autonomy You might get confused, right? Peter says, live as people who are free. Great. Well, if I'm free, I'm free. I don't have to be a slave, and I'll have to do what anybody tells me to do if I'm free. But Peter says immediately to qualify that, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And so what Peter is saying here with this uh, this. This giving of this will of God is listen in the world you still have callings, you still have gifting, you still have structures that exist in which we live out honorably our faith and so you 've got first of all why are these this why is this household code used? Well, because of an apologetic. Secondly, because it reflects for Christians the will of God, guidance for us regardless of culture. And a third purpose that I think uh, is is one of the reasons why this form is used is that these codes serve as an important navigational aid for complex life and very tough situations. Now, we think living in our world is complex and difficult, and it is, but that has been true for Christians in every single time, in every single culture. It's been complex, and it's been difficult, and these Christians were living in a time where persecution was beginning, and it was going to heat up rather quickly for them. Navigating corporate America church-state issues, family dynamics, neighborhood dynamics, school dynamics, navigating social media, navigating these things, requires two things, biblically speaking. It requires a few fixed points. A few fixed points that you can go, okay, when everything else is unclear, I see that star right there, and I can guide by that star right there or that planet right there even if I don't have anything else. You need a few fixed points. So for Israel, Old Testament, and for us as well, Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are fixed points. No matter what situation you find yourself in, here's your compass, here are your fixed points. Use these as a guide for your behavior in this world and that's what these codes serve as as well. And in addition to the fixed points, the fixed points by definition cannot cover every single thing that's out there. These codes, even as much as we're going to look at them and look at what they mean for life in these various arenas that are being discussed, they're not going to be specific for every single circumstance that exists. They're not going to say, well, in this particular circumstance, you should do this. The other thing, therefore, that we need is wisdom. Wisdom and skill. You need to learn these things. You need to grow in these things. That's what these are. Peter is trying to help us to live in a crooked world. And while, without a doubt, these things are culturally configured, they are at the same time timeless. They are culturally configured. One very simple example is uh, we don't have kings or we don't have emperors. And yet, nevertheless. We have rulers who are above us. So we recognize a difference in a structure. But more significantly, Peter lived in a time of slavery. And he gives instructions because that exists at the time. We don't live in a time of slavery, at least not in our nation, praise God. But we then have the word of God to guide us, principles that can be applied in other areas for us. For example, in the area... Okay, so that's the household code setting, and don't worry, that was the longest one uh, that I'm going to do. The next part of the framework is the idea of spheres. Okay, so two things, Uh, household codes and then spheres. Peter is addressing what we can call various spheres of life. Government, work, family, and later he's going to address the church as well. Now, I've been careful to avoid, up to this point, the use of the word spheres. I've called them areas or aspects of life. But let's now think of them as spheres. All of the spheres exist under the ultimate dominion of God. Peter makes that clear. All of of life is lived under the ultimate dominion and rule of God. He is the singular sovereign... Over all of the spheres of life that exist in our world, that exist on earth. And according to God's sovereign will, these spheres each have, sorry to do this again, e- these spheres each have two things. The first thing that they all have is the substance, the composition of the sphere. So uh, if if it's the sphere of the government, it's the role of the government with respect to its citizens. If it's the sphere of the family, things pertaining to the family. So they have their substance or their composition. And then in addition to that, each one of these spheres has a structure to them. Within them, there are lines of authority that exist within those spheres and within those lines of authorities and within their structures, there is a code. Okay, there is a code of conduct that is honorable conduct and appropriate conduct within that sphere. And that's what Peter is doing here. He's taking a sphere, he's drawing the circle around it, and he's saying within that sphere there's authority in their structure, and here's how you need to live. Here's how you need to navigate within this particular sphere that God has created. Now Peter is under no illusions that these spheres always stay within their parameters, always do what they should do in a just way. In fact, his His presupposition is exactly the opposite of that. Peter has no illusions that he or anyone else lives in an ideal world where all of these spheres function just right. He's saying, listen, you're in a crooked world, they don't function right, and so in particular you need instruction when things are not going well. He recognizes that the spheres will not stay in their given orbit, that they won't submit to the sovereign king and his norms for them, And that those who lead the spheres will not always act honorably. Nevertheless, he does see that these spheres exist not only in God's providence, but in God's decree. And ideally, they each have an important role to play and a defined role to play. Ideally, they don't infringe on the turf of another sphere in substance or in structure. They have a degree, then, of sovereignty under the sovereign God. Now, I know I've just said a lot. Let me just articulate it in a very simple kind of way. Well, it's not, it's not simple. So we've just read a passage about the government. In a couple of weeks, we'll read on the church in particular. If you went to our Confession of Faith right now, as particularly the Confession of Faith as received by the American church in the 1700s, you will see that clear lines are drawn between what is the sphere of the church and what is the sphere of the state. And this church is not to intermeddle in the affairs of the state, except, except in cases extraordinary and by means of humble petition. We don't govern the state. We don't govern the state. That is the sphere of the state and the church doesn't govern it. Now, if the state asks us for advice, we may respond to the state or we may make humble petition to the state. But there's a line that is set up between the church and the state and it's in our confession itself. There's a degree of sphere sovereignty under the sovereign God. Let me give you a simple example. Let's take a high school basketball game. Alright, high school basketball game exists, and for, for a moment I'm going to forget about the athletic association, uh, the district that the school is found in, uh, the athletic director of a particular school, or of two particular schools, and we're just going to take the sphere of a basketball game itself. So within that sphere there's the content. What do you want to do inside of the sphere? And the answer is of course, play the basketball game. Play, have, a, have a good game, play the game, enjoy the game, win the game. Uh, so you want to play basketball. But in addition to the content of the sphere, the sphere also has a structure to it and authority within that. And so in a basketball game, you've got an officiating crew and that officiating crew with the three officials and perhaps with a timekeeper and perhaps with an official score as well, they have authority over that game. There's two coaches who have authority over their teams. There's maybe team captains who have some authority within that Uh, team itself as a member of it. And then there's rules. There's rules. There's a code of honorable and proper conduct within that sphere. And what Peter is instructing us here is to say, listen, if you're playing a I'm sorry, I'm just gonna riff on this for a moment. If you're playing a basketball game, then remember you're in that sphere. And this guy who's a referee can't give you a ticket for driving fast. But he can blow the whistle and call a foul on you. And so Peter is saying, well, that, you have to live within that structure. You have to practice honorable conduct within that sphere that God has established in this world, and there are nevertheless things that humans do. So Peter instructs us how to live in and under these various imperfect spheres that exist under God's sovereignty in this world. So the uncreated sovereign Lord wants us to live with respect to the many created spheres and within, if you will, their human sovereigns that exist within those spheres. All right, this leads to the third. The third uh, framework, the third part of the heading here is a word that I just have to mention because it's prominent in all that we're going to do over the next couple of weeks. And it's the word subjection or the word be subject. With respect to these spheres, there is common instruction in each one of them, and the instruction in each and every one of them begins with these words, Be subject. In 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. In 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. In chapter 3, verse 1, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. In chapter 5, with respect to... The church, verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Your version, depending on what version of the Bible you have in front of you, may say, submit yourselves. And so we are instructed by the apostle in subjection, in submission. So combine our three points so far. Here's what you've got. The code is that within their spheres people ought to, the people of the Lord ought to be subject. Be subject to the appointed authorities within those spheres. Now, sometimes there's a desire to soften this term, and we get that, right? You want to translate be subject into show deference or show respect. Now, without question, showing deference and showing respect is absolutely part of what it means to be subject or to submit yourselves. But it's not all of it. The the reality is, be subject does actually mean be subject. And submit actually means submit. And they also mean obey. Obey. The authorities that are found in these structures. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago when I was preaching from verses five and six of chapter three, where it says there how God used how the holy women of old used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham. You could reverse those words as the holy women of old used to adorn themselves, obeying their own husbands, as Sarah submitted. To Abraham, you could just reverse them because they're essentially saying the exact same thing. Or, how, in 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 the literal sense here, how would, how did she show that submission, obedience? That's how she showed the the submission uh, to him was by her obedience. Now, if we're going to be able to hear and to heed and to understand the apostolic teaching as a church. We are going to have to reckon with how countercultural and how distasteful we find this to be. If someone comes up to you and says, You are so submissive. Uh, just so you know, they're insulting you, <laughs> okay? They, they're not paying you a compliment. They're not saying, that's great, you're so, sub, such a submissive person. They are insulting you. Uh, I have a group of guys who are not believers who sometimes want to know what I'm preaching on this week. I, I said what I'm preaching on, and, and the one guy said, no, you should preach on sin. Uh, and uh, he always thinks I should preach on sin. Uh, and, uh, and I said, no, this, this is, this is going to be it. And I I said the the words that I've said thus far. I said, I'm preaching on household codes, and I'm preaching on spheres, and I'm preaching on subjection. And the guy immediately said, what do you mean by subjection? It was the one word that he heard in the entire thing. Why? Why? Well, you know why. Because it runs counter to everything. Everything. Every single... There's no message in our culture that agrees with this. There's barely a sphere where you could find it to be palatable, palatable to be somehow acceptable to the people of our generation and to ourselves as well. We've just got to reckon uh, on this fact. Everything in our culture tells us to lead, to make the change, to be the change. Who you are shouldn't depend on the expectations of people around you on the expectations of society or to use the language, and I know our culture doesn't use this language, don't let these spheres that are out there define you. Don't let the rulers of those spheres tell you who you should be. Don't let the traditions, the norms, the codes of those spheres tell you what you should be. Don't let them determine your identity. Don't let them tell you what to do. You be you. That's the message that is there. Our world, in other words, wants you to view yourself as an autonomous sphere of one. A sphere of one. You are the one person in your sphere. By definition, you are the leader of your sphere. And by definition, you get to define the parameters, the norms, the code of your own particular sphere. Except, of course, that your code has to agree with the fundamental concept of an autonomous sphere. So that, that one, you have to agree with that. It's very confusing. The code is that you only submit to the code you make as long as the code you make yields submission to the mob code on Twitter. Nobody actually says that, but that's the reality of it. You make your code, you make your own code, as long as the rest of the people on Twitter think that your code is an acceptable code because your code is about autonomy of the self so for reflection submit in the cultural lexicon is a bad word in the biblical world it is honorable and that's a tough pill to swallow that is tough and we just have to recognize it and think through the implications of that now let me just say two things here one, this doesn't mean that there aren't exceptions of course there are exceptions And we can talk about the exceptions, but if you talk about exceptions, that means there's a rule, okay? That means there's a norm, and by definition, the exception is a deviation from the norm. And it also means that you can't participate. It doesn't say you can't participate in the forming of the norms or in the reforming of the leadership of the various spheres so that they are better. So, neither of those things are being said there, but what is being said is that the fundamental disposition, the starting place for the Christian, is be subject. Be submissive. It is clear, it is the first thing that is said in every single one of the things that are before us today. And then that finally takes us to the very last thing I wanted to say about the framework today, and we'll close it up with this. All of this life of household codes, of spheres, of subjection, all of it rests upon the life and the example and the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ. In the passage that I read for us, uh, verses 13 through 17, there's not a word about Jesus in there. If you read 3, 1 through 7, wives and husbands, there's not a word about Jesus in there. But if you read the middle section, this passage is deliberately focused on this middle section right where Christ is. Christ is the example for all of this. He's the focal point, he's the hub, he's the pivot point for all of these things. Verse 21, for to this you have been called, to this life of subjection within the spheres, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps." You say, hey, it's going it's to cost me suffering. It's going to cost me to follow the, the authorities in these spheres. And Peter goes, yep, just like it did Jesus. It's the example for you. Jesus is the example. His life, His suffering is the example, unless you think that's a one-off. Chapter 3, verse 18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Christ suffered in the flesh Arm yourselves with that. There's a strange weapon to take up. You're taking up the armor of Jesus Christ, the sufferer. The sufferer in this world. Arm yourselves with that, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's a complicated one, we'll get to that one when we come. Here's the point. Jesus, in this world, was subject to his Father. But not only was he subject to his heavenly father and the laws of his heavenly father, he was subject to his parents as well. And however good of parents Mary and Joseph were throughout their lives, I'm sure there were many instances of injustice towards Jesus on the part of his brothers and sisters, on the part of his parents as well. He was subject to ill treatment. He was subject to the governing Authorities. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. And he did all of that for the sake of the mission. It was the mission. He was the righteous for the unrighteous. That's what he was doing. It wasn't incidental to what he was doing, it was the strategy of the mission. And we can't say, thanks, I'd like another strategy. May have, a, may have a different strategy, priest. I want the victory strategy. I want the lead, come, and conquer. I want the Roman strategy. I'm going to get it wrong. I'm not going to even say it. I came, I saw, I conquered. I don't have it right there. But that's the strategy that the world would like to like, and we'd like to like it somewhat as well, instead of the suffering strategy. But now, here's the upshot Chapter 3, verse 21 through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Subjected to him. He put himself under all of those other things and now every other power that can be named among men is being put in subjection underneath of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in whatever missional sphere God has placed you, and of course we all move in and out of these various spheres all the time, whatever we're being called to, we are called to it in Christ, for Christ, and after the pattern of Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, next week. We'll look at this section again, and we'll look at it specifically with respect to its teaching about governing authorities. And for now, I just encourage you to reflect on the framework that we've got kind of laid out before us of these household codes, of the spheres of the subjection, and of the preeminent example of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to do that, help us to, way, to live in a way that is honorable, and Lord, we recognize that many of these things are at least, if not contrary to, uh, to what the world says, they're, they're even contrary to some of the things that our flesh, our own flesh, cries out for as well. We enjoy comfort more than we enjoy suffering. And so we pray that you would help us to hear and to heed faithfully your word and appropriately within this world, within this culture, that you've placed us in. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.